It was about Jesus' identity. You ever feel like the disciples were kind of dense? Like, how could you not tell who this was? We don't know when the disciples learned about the virgin birth and Jesus' royal genealogy and, and some of these clues that we know before we start meeting Jesus. They just met this guy. And sure, he was a powerful teacher, but there's good teachers that make sense. He was a he was a healer for sure, a miraculous healer and that that's a big clue. But at least people had heard of healers. I'm not saying there are any healers running around the way Jesus healed people. I'm incredibly skeptical of that, but at least you've heard of it. What Jesus does today combined with what they've already seen makes them begin to just, who is this really? I want to go through this story of Jesus miraculously calming a storm. And and then at the end, share with you, like we normally do, how I think this story should affect us today. And we're, there's going to be, there's four great things in this story. There's a, there's a great storm that causes great fear. There's great calm that leads the disciples to ask a great question. That's the story today. Great storm, great fear, great calm, and a great question. Then I'll add a bonus great at the end. Because Jesus can be our great friend. A little bit like Chester has that great friend spike that nobody can get at him. But that's at the end. First, let's look at the story that starts with this great storm. Uh, Today at the beginning, Jesus and the disciples are getting into a boat. He told them actually up in verse 18 to get get into the boat. and, And then some conversations happened that we talked about last week. And today they finally board ship. And we know from earlier, they they they're in Capernaum. They've been at Peter's house. Peter lived in Capernaum. We know James and John lived in Capernaum. They were fishermen. The the logical idea here is what they get into either one of Peter's commercial fishing boats or one of John and James' family, their uh, personal commercial fishing boats. History tells us they would have been big enough. We know from the other Gospels there's at least 13 people on board. Um, This is a good-sized craft to carry them, and they set sail out into what's usually called, we usually call it the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake by our definition of that term. Sometimes it's called Sea of Tiberias. Sometimes it's called Gennesaret or Lake Gennesaret. Just to give you the visual of the, the, the body of water there, they're out on. Um, uh, McConaughey up here at Ogallala. Um, sea of Galilee is actually a little bit shorter lengthwise from end to end than is McConaughey. It's about twice as wide. So that's a good-sized body of water, but it's not like Lake Michigan or anything, which, by the way, Lake Michigan's bigger than all of Israel. (laughs) Uh, America's really big, in case you're you're wondering. It's big over here. Uh, So that's what they are, the kind of the body of water they're out on when... Matthew tells us suddenly, our Bible say, a furious storm, a, a, a great tempest 
arose on the sea. This is a special storm. This is a, this is a big one. I don't know if you've ever been on like enders down here when the weather turns and it gets scary. Uh, this happens here in a very big way. And what Matthew tells us, in Greek he says, edu seismos megas. And, and you hear the word seismos in there. You ever hear an earthquake called seismic activity? comes from this word. The next two times we see that Greek word in Matthew, it will be translated earthquake. Um, what he says there is, check this out, looky here, a great shaking uh, happened on the sea. Seismos megas, mega shaking happened on the sea. Now we know there's wind involved too, because Jesus, when he calms the storm, he, he, he calms the wind as well. But this thing is like an earthquake has happened in that uh, giant, that big lake. And that storm, that quick, that great storm caused, very understandably so, great fear to well up inside the disciples. I don't blame them a bit. If you've ever been out on water, when a decent thunderstorm, it can get scary. Um, What last, last year we had some people lose some boats Down here at Enders, right? The wind changed direction, blew really fast, and glug, 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 right? Um, We know at least four people on that ship were very very experienced sailors. It's probably one of their boats. They know the boat well. They know the water well. Um, Sudden storms are common there. This one may be a little more mega than the normal sudden storm there. But still, if you're going to be in a boat on this lake, in this boat, in rough weather, these are the four guys you want with you. And these experienced sailors are basically like, it's time to panic. Everyone, this is time to scream and panic and run around because we are going to die. They believe They're going to die. That's what leads them to cry out in verse 25 toward Jesus. Lord, save us. We are perishing. We're we're about to die unless you do something. The great storm causes great fear. But also in this story we see great calm. And we actually see great calm during the storm And we see great calm after the storm. The first great calm we see in this story is happening inside of Jesus while the storm is going on. While this storm's going on, what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. He is sawing logs over there. Is that hard for you to believe? If this is a mega shaking of the sea... There's water crashing. Matthew says the water's covering the boat. Like there's waves coming over the top and crashing down on this boat. So there's lots of water. There's lots of wind. There's lots of this. People can't stand up. Matthew tells us Jesus is asleep. Is that hard to believe? Here's what I think is, I believe it. I believe Jesus was asleep. We're told it in multiple eyewitness accounts. 
Here's what I believe is going on inside of Jesus that gives him this great calm. You know that while you are asleep, your senses still work, right? You can still hear, smell, uh, feel. You don't see that great unless you sleep with your eyes open, which is creepy. Don't do that. But your senses still work. It's just that your brain filters out stuff that it doesn't think you need to wake up for. Right? Some of you sleep with a snorer. Don't raise your hand. Right? You you learn to where you don't hear that. And your brain says, you don't have to wake up now. When, when we go home to my parents' house, the, the bedroom where Rachel and I sleep, the head of that bed right on the other side of the wall is this old German wall clock, the, the wind-up kind, and the pendulum ticks like 12,000 decibels at night. You can hear the tick-tock. And when that thing chimes on the hours, it is loud. So we stop that clock because it'll wake us up. But if we slept in that room every night, what would our brains do? We wouldn't hear that anymore. Because our brains can say, you don't need to wake up for that. It sort of filters it out. When, when I was a little kid, uh, we lived at, uh, on office, off at Air Force Base. My first memories are living on base. And then we lived just off of base later. There's planes, big planes taken off and landing all hours of the day and night. They didn't wake me up ever that I can remember. I'm an excellent sleeper. Drives, it drives Rachel nuts, by the way. Uh, honey, I'm just trying to sleep like Jesus. I'm just being like Jesus. It's just part of my sanctification. Um, here's what I think's going on here. Jesus, fully human, but so confident in his mission, in his identity, in what he's doing there, that he, he needed this sleep. Some commentators, several common commentators, believe the reason Jesus left that crowd, besides what we talked about last week, is because he's exhausted from ministering and he needs rest. And he goes to sleep. And because he knows my time to die is not yet He's so confident we are getting to the other side of the lake that to him, like a hurricane force storm is like white noise. His brain says, you don't have to wake up for this. Catch some Z's. That's great calm. When the disciples finally get Jesus woke up, um, it's like he can't understand why they would wake him up. Well, because we thought we were going to die. Um, Literally, in verse 25, he calls them cowards, deloi. Makes fun of their little faith. Um, He he apparently thinks that by now they should understand what he understands until it's my time to go. As long as I'm in this boat, this boat ain't going down. So if you're with me, you don't have to worry about you. Don't you understand? Don't you believe? Now, this is going on during the storm still. When he's telling his disciples, he's calling them cowards. The boat's still doing this, right? The wind, the waves, the whole nine yards. And then Jesus does something for, their, for an illustration for them. It's not, he's not saving their lives. 
by calming this storm. They're getting to the other side of the lake, whether he calms this storm or not, because he's in the boat. But what he does is he takes that great calm that's inside of him and makes it appear everywhere else so the disciples will ask their great question. When Mark tells a story, Mark tells us what Jesus says. It's a really cool word. Uh, Do you have a dog? Or does your neighbor have a dog that gets to barking too much? Whatever you yell at your dog to try and get it to be quiet, that's what Jesus yells at this storm. Literally, he says, be muzzled. It's what people yelled at dogs. The closest translation I'd come up with would be, shut up. That's what he says. He rebukes this storm. He tells it to be quiet. And all of a sudden, Matthew tells us, I like this translation, he rebuked the winds and the sea, and it was, this translation says, dead calm. The word dead's not in, in the Greek, but it's the word mega again. It was suddenly mega calm. Now that's a weird concept. Calm means calm, right? It means it's not moving. Like the chair you're sitting in is calm. What's mega calm? (laughs) I'm not even real sure, except here's what Matthew's communicating. This was not slowly the winds went away and the sea that's doing this finally kind of starts to slow down and then maybe we dodge the bullet. It is instantaneous. He makes water go like glass. And they're scared for their lives. And he's telling them, you people of little faith, what's wrong with you? Right? You're cowards. And he says, be quiet. Boom. And suddenly it's just, just glass. Can you imagine that? And everybody, I imagine they probably, someone probably fell over. The boat's doing this so hard and all of a sudden, whew, Nothing. And in my mind's eye, I see them just stand there on the deck of that ship in stunned silence. And one of the disciples, Nathaniel, breaks the silence and he goes, now it's, it's so calm, can we water ski now? And the rest of the disciples are like, shut up, Nathaniel, you ruin everything. None of us can row that fast anyway. No, um, seriously though, the, so they are, man, I broke the mood right there with that one. So, Life-threatening storm to instantaneous calm. What a moment that must have been. And that's what leads the disciples. That great calm that Jesus took from inside of himself and forced it, forced nature to match his insides leads the disciples uh, to ask a great question. The men were amazed. I would guess that's probably accurate. And they say, what sort of person is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. What kind of guy is this? It's a great, great question. Now, in a minute, I want to talk about what this passage like should mean for you and me but you and me aren't the main point of this passage okay the main point of this passage is anyone who would be a disciple of Jesus needs to figure out who is this who is Jesus really 
That's the main point of this passage. Jesus does something not to save their lives so that they will start to learn and ask this question, who are we dealing with here? Psalm 107 is, it's kind of long, but it's a, it's a, it's a Psalms in the Old Testament. And so before, long before Jesus was ever born, and it's a psalm that's written with some different examples of good things God has done for people. And one story of good stuff God had, has done for people is a lot like today's story. Something good God did for some sailors one time. I want to read just a little part of Psalm 107 with you, beginning in verse 23. Some traveled on the sea in ships and carried cargo over the vast waters. They witnessed the acts of the Lord, his amazing feats on the deep water. He gave the order for a windstorm, and it stirred up the waves of the sea. And I love Hebrew poetry. Look at how, listen to how it describes this boat in this storm. Verse 26, they reached up to the sky, then they dropped into the depths. Imagine being on a sea where your boat is doing that. They dropped into the depths. The sailors' strength left them because the danger was so great. Here's how they tried to stay on their feet on the, on the deck of that ship. Verse 27, they swayed and staggered like a drunk, and all their skill proved ineffective. They cried out to the Lord in their distress. He delivered them from their troubles. He calmed the storms, storm, and the waves grew silent. And the rest of it is then the, way the, the sailors rejoice because of what God did for them. Does that sound like today's passage? That was written about the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who met Moses in the burning bush. Today Jesus says, yeah, that's me. I'm the God. What kind of man can make the physical properties of water do what he wants it to do, which isn't what it normally would do. Only God can do that. Parting the Red Sea, calming the storm. These guys know Jesus is a man. They've been living with him. They eat with him. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but he's used the restroom. He's a dude. They know that. But he does things only God can do. Who can make the sea and the wind obey him? I know of one other king that tried. You ever hear of Xerxes? Nerdy history alert, sorry. But Xerxes, if you, if you know the book of Esther, he's the king in that. Have you ever seen the movie 300 Spartans? He's the Persian king depicted in that. Uh, it was known as the King of Kings, by the way. He was used to absolute power, always got his way. One time, because he thought it'd be easier to get his army from Asia into Europe, he commanded his engineers and architects and builders to build a bridge across a little narrow section of the Mediterranean Sea called the Hellespont. And he said, I want you to build a bridge across the ocean there. Now, this is B.C., Right, And so they get busy and they try. The sea doesn't cooperate. In the Mediterranean storm comes up and destroys his first attempt uh, at this bridge. And they tell him, the sea destroyed your bridge, O king. You know what he did? 
History tells us he ordered soldiers to wade out into the ocean with whips and spank the ocean. Whip the ocean for daring to disobey him. Now, how stupid is that? Some of you have served in the military, and I'm going to guess you had to follow some orders that you thought were just plain dumb, but they weren't that dumb. Because the ocean doesn't obey anybody. But it obeys Jesus. Because he's God. This is the great question. Who is Jesus? And if nothing else the disciples are learning, if I am in the boat with Jesus, that's a pretty good place to be. Being Jesus' friend is, is better than being Spike's friend if you're the little yappy dog, Chester. So who is Jesus? And how does somebody become his friend? And what does being a friend of Jesus do for a guy or a gal? First, knowing Jesus. The Bible says if you know Jesus... He, he will, he will make himself your friend. But we have to know who he is to know him. Right? You can't know someone without knowing who they are. Like you can meet somebody. You can know about like someone. Like I know about President Trump. I don't know President Trump. Right? Knowing Jesus, I have to know, I have to get to learn who he is before I can know him. Did you know? The Bible says the first benefit, the most obvious benefit of knowing Jesus as a friend is he gives you eternal life. But did you know the Bible tells us he actually is eternal life. Knowing Jesus is the same thing as having eternal life. Oh, I was supposed to be on that slide already. Jesus being our great friend. Um, when Jesus was about to die, he began to pray for his current disciples and the rest of us who would become his disciples later. And in John 17, we read, he looked upward to heaven and said, Father, the time has come. Glorify your son so that your son may glorify you, just as you have given him authority over all humanity so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. Now, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus, the Christ whom you have sent. Very clearly, Jesus, in prayer to the Father, said, here's eternal life, knowing you and knowing me. Knowing Jesus is eternal life. It's the only way to eternal life. John again, 1 John chapter 5. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know the true one, nicknamed for Almighty God. And we are in the true one, that is, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God. He is eternal life. Very clearly. If somebody knocks on your door and has a conversation with you and tells you that Jesus Christ isn't fully God, they are deceived. 
Very clearly his best friend John said, He is the true God. He is eternal life. To know Jesus is to have eternal life. But what do we need to know about him? The disciples were just learning. We live on the other side of the cross. Here's some things we have to know about Jesus to be in a relationship with him. We have to know that his death on the cross was done so that he would bear the penalty our sins deserve. That's why he went to the cross. Someone had to die for our sins because God promised to punish every sin. Someone had to die for your sin. Jesus said, it'll be me if you will believe in me. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Paul, to people who already knew the cross, said this, Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, being a friend of Jesus, or excuse me, believing in Jesus means believing he is God, fully God. Believing the reason he came here was to pay the punishment your, your sins deserved. And trusting that just knowing him, believing in him is eternal life. And when we do that, Jesus says, this. He said this to his disciples. He means it for us too. I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. There is no greater friend to have than Jesus Christ. What does that do for us? If we become Jesus' friend, we like to say around here, we've been saying it for six years now, seven years now. Get in the boat with Jesus. When you're in the boat with Jesus, what does that do for us? Most obviously, it means we will get to the other side, so to speak, someday. I believe in Jesus. I have eternal life. I already have it. I don't, it's not wait and see how good I row along the way. I have eternal life. I, am, I will get to where I am going. But more than just what it does for me someday, being friends with Jesus can do something for us today. And I just picked three, three things out of this story. That being in the boat with Jesus, being friends with Jesus, does for someone, should do for us. And I want you to notice these three things from our story. First, being a friend of Jesus, from this story, we reminded, if we don't know already, this. Jesus hears his scared friends. You know, when Jesus was asleep on that boat, he's got that filter that even the storm won't wake him up. Pay attention to what didn't wake him up, but what did. One more illustration. When we moved to Smith Center, Kansas in 2001, we moved, we were two blocks north of the train tracks. And we were kind of in the middle of the block, but on either side of that block were intersections that that train went over. And it came through at night 
a couple times a week. What does a train do when it gets to an intersection? It blasts its horn. We're two blocks from this thing. When we first moved in, like I had to peel Rachel off the ceiling the first night when that thing, uh, you know, the, the train lays on its horn and man, we were awake. Eventually, what happens? Even Rachel, who's a light sleeper, learned to not wake up every time the train blew its horn. Her brain said, that train's not coming off the tracks. It's not coming through the bedroom. You can, you can remain sleeping. So eventually, a train whistle didn't wake us up. But let one of our little kids down the hall sniffle. Let one of our little kids have a bad dream and cry out just a little bit. Not nearly as loud as a train whistle. But you better believe my wife was awake. Her brain could say, you don't need to listen to the train whistle. But when one of her babies cried out a little bit, her brain said, that's your baby down there. And she was awake. Jesus slept through a hurricane-force storm. And his brain said, don't get up. Rest. What did wake him up? His friends were scared. Lord Jesus, save us. Even though Jesus knew they didn't have anything to be scared of. Even if he wakes up, he tells them, your faith is small. You're not scared of us. You're you're scared of something you shouldn't be scared of. The reason you're scared is because your faith is little. But he gets up. He hears them. He responds. Jesus hadn't stopped being Jesus. He's the same Jesus he was back then. Even when you are scared, when you are worried, when you have anxiety, even if it's something Jesus says you shouldn't feel that way, he hears you and he cares. Second, from this story, I want you to notice Jesus helps even friends with little faith. Just from this story, if this was the only example this we had in Scripture, this would be enough. Does Jesus only respond to people who have big faith and don't have any doubts and have all their questions answered and know what happened to the dinosaurs? Is that the only people? No! No, but it's not the only place. We've seen it in Matthew. Uh, we, we spent a couple weeks about, on anxiety a few months ago from Matthew chapter 6. It's this, pa- this passage where Jesus says, think about the birds, how God takes care of them and he loves you more than birds. And look at the fields. God takes care of the grass. Just want to remind you what Jesus said there, Matthew 6.30. And if this is how God takes care of the fields, the wild grass, which is here today and tomorrow it's tossed in the fire to preheat the oven, Won't he clothe you even more as long as you have all your questions answered and don't doubt and have big faith? Is that what Jesus said? He's going to take care of you as long as you have the requisite amount of faith and you've been to Bible college and you memorize all you want of verses. Is that what he said? And he said, no, won't he take care of you even though you have a little faith? That boat is getting to the other side of the shore, whether those disciples believe it or not. Because of the mustard seed size of faith. We'll get to that story later. 
Jesus says, I, I got you. You're rolling with the big dog now. That's why you don't worry. Because of my faithfulness, not yours. And the third lesson. Peace, that great calm, can begin to grow in the hearts of friends of Jesus who grow in their relationship to him. As my confidence in his faithfulness grows, that peace, like Paul said, the peace that transcends all understanding, the peace that doesn't even make sense, can begin to grow in my life, in my heart, so that while the storm continues, I can still feel the peace knowing I'm getting to the other side. The problem in the disciples, Jesus, when he woke up, he basically said, you're not scared because of the storm. You're scared because of your small faith. And whether you have peace in your heart or fear in your heart, the boat's going to the same place either way. You want to feel better in your heart? Grow in your confidence in me. What we want to do is, I'll be confident in you if you do what I want. I know you can calm this. Chop, chop. I'll feel better if you take away what's wrong. Jesus will make very clear to these guys, I will not calm every storm. Most of them get executed. You can have peace. We've got a sign hanging in our, in our house. I love it. Sometimes Jesus calms the storm. Sometimes he lets the storm rage and calms his child instead. Justin that spoke this weekend that I talked about during, before the singing time this morning. From an earthly, short of a fantastic miracle, God's not going to calm the storm. It came to the point with his wife when they had that last scan and they said her cancer is back. Uh, it's in her liver. It's in her liver. It's in her brain. It's in her bones. It's in her blood. And we can't do anything for her. God didn't calm that storm the way they wanted. But you should have heard his testimony of the peace. The pain's still real. The loss is still real. The hurt's still real. But so is the peace. That comes even when you get to the point where the only thing I have to depend on is that my boat will get to a better sea. Peace and confidence grow in those who are growing in their trust and their faith in Jesus. A mustard-sized amount of faith is enough to put me in the boat with them, but don't let your faith stay there. The peace grows when my faith grows. This was my original conclusion because I wrote this a month ago. I put Justin in this morning. Romans 8, Paul said, If God is for us, who can be against us? 
Indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? The psalmist said it this way, the the Lord is on my side. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now that I'm running with the big dog. Pray with me. We'll finish. Father God, I I thank you so much for making the gospel clear to tell us how we can know you through faith in Jesus, how you, how you can be our friend and not no longer at enmity with us, but, but Jesus can be our friend. You're, you're our Father who disciplines and chastises and directs, but you have made yourself a friend. God, for those of us who are in that boat and have placed our faith in Jesus, don't leave us there. We're like that guy in Mark that said to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Grow our faith that we can trust you more so that during the storms that you allow in our life, people might look at us and see a peace that from their perspective just shouldn't be there. Thank you that there is peace that comes with being in the boat with Jesus. Thanks for being our friend, Lord. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.